Hope that's the prayer of your heart, that we would glory in the cross of Christ, revel in His sacrifice. What a great God we serve. I do want to point out, I don't think I asked Scott to announce it, but we do have the pool party coming up this next Saturday. Is that right, Cindy? Yeah. So, um, great opportunity for us to serve and to make some contact with our community and all the, the kids that are going to be there. Uh, everyone's invited. Your families are invited. Uh, I think the whole community is invited. So, uh, be a good opportunity for our, for our church and for each one of us. Let's go to our God in prayer and ask Him to bless our time in His Word. Lord God, we thank You for the Scripture. We thank You that You're a God who communicates with us, who wants to be known and wants to know us. We thank You that You've given us Your Word that we might walk with You, that we might understand You, that we might understand life, the world around us, the very nature of our own hearts. Father, as we continue in this study of Hebrews, I pray that You would help us to see ways that we can apply everything that we've been learning about Jesus Christ and His superiority to all the other somethings that, that vie for our attention and our worship. And I, I pray that we would see how we can apply this in practical ways in which our walk would be changed because our hearts are changed. That our behavior would be changed because our belief is changed. And so please teach us now, we pray. Use Your Word. Might it cut deep? and do the surgery that it's intended to do. I pray that we wouldn't push you away, or that, we would, that we would not uh, hinder your spirit and, and stifle him at all. But might we invite his hand of surgery to remove what needs to be taken away. Please encourage us now. Exhort us. Rebuke us. Help us to walk on your path. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Bob Deffenbaugh once recalled the story of a priest who was living in a, a, a large city. And apparently this story is true. Uh, the priest was coming out of the church in the dark of night when he was accosted by a robber. The robber shoved a pistol into the priest's ribs and demanded that he produce his wallet. The priest was in no position to resist, so he reached inside his coat. And as he did so, the, the priest's collar became visible. And the robber was completely taken back and he, as he realized that he was robbing a priest. Are, 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 are you a priest? He, he questioned. Yes, I am, the priest replied. <laughs> well, I don't rob priests, the man said. <laughs> thanks, thanks a lot, the priest responded gratefully. And as he was drawing his hand from his pocket, it brushed against some cigars that were there along with his wallet. And he says, have a, have a cigar, the priest offered. <laughs> and he said, oh no, I, I couldn't do that, said the thief. You see, I've given them up for Lent. <laughs> now, <laughs> here was a devoutly religious man. He would rob nearly any vulnerable victim, but he drew the line at robbing priests and smoking cigars. We, we laugh at this story because it illustrates the tremendous gap that often exists between our faith and our practice. And we can all point to certain examples in our own lives as well as examples that we've seen where faith, the faith that is declared doesn't match the life that's lived. The Epistle of James touches on this when he wrote, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Paul, the great theologian who wrote Romans, a treatise on justification through faith, he also declared in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we usually end the quotation there, don't we? But sometimes we forget verse 10, goes on and continues the statement and says, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You'll find it very common in the New Testament epistles that there will be large sections of doctrine, chapter after chapter of teaching. But then, Following these large sections of, of deep, rich theology comes very practical instruction on putting what we believe into practice. Faith must change our lives. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ. But, but that faith in Jesus Christ does not stand alone. It, it, it changes us. And as a result of that faith, it produces works in our life that please our God and, and show that we are His workmanship, that we are created for those good works. What we believe about heavenly realities must alter the way that we live out earthly realities. Faith has to change our life. And so in Ephesians 1-3, through you'll find rich theology about the theology of the, the church. And then in chapters 4-6, through you'll find incredible application to the doctrine that's developed in those, the first half of that book. In Romans chapter 1, verses, uh, in chapter 1 through 11, you'll find this deep treatise on, on justification. And then in chapters 12 through 16, you discover the impact that that justification makes on the Christian life. And it's no different in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapters 1 through 10, we've discovered a masterpiece, a sermon that was written into a letter and sent to this Hebrew church that probably lived in Rome. And and the first 10 chapters are this masterpiece of biblical literature on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. In chapter 11, the author walked us through the great hall of faith and showed us example after example of many righteous ones who have come before us and they live by faith. They understood that Jesus is better than anything else. He's better than all the something else's that this world has to offer. And so they persevered. They endured. And Hebrews offered us one more call to obedience in chapter 12, along with a warning not to refuse our Lord, not to refuse listening to Him who speaks. And then he concluded in verses 28 and 29. He said, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. My friends, we are heirs of a kingdom. A kingdom that cannot be destroyed. And we know that the entire universe is going to be shaken, and only what has eternal value will remain. We talked about last week how there are only two things that are on this earth that are going to last for eternity. And those are the things that we need to be investing in. God's Word and people. Those are the things that are going to persist past this lifetime. 
The entire universe is going to be shaken, but only what has eternal value will remain. And so in this last chapter that we're going to discover over this next, uh, this next three weeks, including today, uh, we're going to discover some of the unshakable investments that belong to our heavenly portfolio. The first six verses of chapter 13 are summed up by the command that we find in verse 1. Please look there with me. In the original language, verse 1 contains only three words. Quite literally, it reads, Philadelphia must remain. Now, of course, he's not talking about either the city that's in Pennsylvania or the city that's in Turkey. The, the word Philadelphia means brotherly love, and thus why the city has its nickname. Of course, there's different Greek words that are translated as love. Oftentimes, they're used as synonyms. Sometimes, they have different uh, particular nuances. But um, often they're used as, while, while often they're used as synonyms, Philadelphia refers to the kind of love that bonds brothers and sisters together. Sometimes your siblings can be incredibly difficult, can't they? Sometimes you can be incredibly difficult for your siblings. My two daughters just looked at each other. But no matter what, there's a bond that normally should occur in families. God designed it this way. He intended it. It's the love between friends. And here it refers to the, the affection that brothers and sisters in Christ have for one another because, our common bond, because of our common bond in Christ. We are family. Brotherly love must remain. If Jesus Christ is supreme, then your theology must impact your social relationships. Your theology must impact your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if Jesus has broken down all the barriers of sin and all the constraints of the law, and He has led you into heavenly places and made access to the very throne of God, for you, you don't have to go through a priest or him through a curtain anymore. Jesus Christ has paved the way directly for you to come directly before your Father in heaven. And so then this better relationship that you enjoy with the living God must transform the relationships that you have on earth. Brotherly love must remain. It's a command. It's a mandate. And it can be difficult. Linus from the cartoon strip Peanuts once said, I love mankind. It's people that I can't stand. People can be tough and difficult. We all know that we're supposed to love one another. You read a passage like this, a command like this, and you go, oh, that's nice. Love one another. Love must remain. Of course it must. But, but do we think about the, the ramifications of that and how that applies in our lives and some of the things that that's going to impact? Some real decisions that you have to make about how you're going to do that? We like the commands to love one another, but sometimes we don't like actually putting it into practice and doing the hard work of it. We know that we're supposed to love one another, but sometimes people are just plain difficult to love. And we want love to be spontaneous, but we, we have to understand that acts of love usually require an act of the will. I believe that Hebrews was probably written to an audience that was starting to suffer persecution. Some of them had truly experienced it already. Uh, others of them were told earlier in, the, in Hebrews that, that they walked alongside those that were suffering as if they were going through it themselves. And some of them were about to shed blood for their faith in Jesus Christ. They were going to enter a time in those next few years that was going to be very difficult for this church. When you go through difficulties like that, 
it, it starts to take its toll on relationships. Things start to fray on the edges. People start to distrust one another. Things that you shrugged off a few weeks ago now set you on edge. Something that, that you laughed off in 2019 now requires you to rant eloquently over social media in 2022. The stress, the trials of life, the persecution that Jesus promised that we would endure as His children, or just the stress of unusual circumstances. One of the first things to go in a community like the Hebrews were in was Philadelphia. Brotherly love. And so we must let brotherly love continue. Brotherly love, Philadelphia, must remain. And I, and I, and I have to say, some of us, I, I know, you're struggling with this. Some of us are struggling with this today. Some of us are struggling with specific people in this church. There are some people in this church that you struggle to love. Some of us are struggling with specific people in our larger circles. Some of us have people that we are ignoring in the Christian community because we would rather not have to deal with them. We all have people in our lives that can be difficult, don't we? We all have people in our lives that we must choose to love. And sometimes that takes some very tangible, purposeful expressions of the will. But if Jesus Christ is supreme, if He is better than everything else, if all the other somethings that have called you to worship God in some other different way, if Jesus Christ is truly supreme, then it changes our lives. We must be intentional about it. And we must cultivate this affectionate bond that has characterized the church community for 2,000 years and made us known around the world because we are people that love one another. Jesus used a different word in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, but He said it this way. He said, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. So what are the ways, who are the people, what are some of the tangible expressions that you need to put into practice today? Because Jesus Christ is better. And He's provided a better way. Well, this is the second mandate in our passage and one of the ways that we let Philadelphia continue. And we find it in verse 2. He says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. You know, in the first century, when Hebrews was written, hospitality was an essential part of the Christian community. It was essential within the Christian, the Christian church. There were no hotels, and Motel 6 did not leave the light on for you. There were inns, but they, they oftentimes had a very bad reputation. They were frequented by thieves and prostitutes. And so instead, as Christians would travel from community to community, they would rely on the hospitality of others. Many times people that they had never met before. Particularly with the apostles as they had an itinerant ministry that traveled all over the Roman Empire. They relied on the hospitality of believers in these different communities. And so prophets and, and apostles and teachers would travel about, and even just people in the church that were traveling from one city to another, they would rely not on an inn where things were questionable and they didn't want to have a part with it, but they would rely on the hospitality of other brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And so in the early church, there were many traveling teachers, and, and the community would take them into their homes. And additionally, there were Christians who were displaced. They lost their homes and their livelihoods, and they relied, on a time, uh, on, they relied for a time on the hospitality of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I understand there, there certainly are differences in our culture, and sometimes in the way that we demonstrate hospitality. But nevertheless, hospitality removes us from what is comfortable, doesn't it? And anytime you demonstrate this kind of kindness to strangers, whether it's having them in your home, sharing a meal, handing a person $10 for, for something that they need, hospitality, it removes us from what's comfortable. Oftentimes it puts you in a position where that person may be taking advantage of you. We know from the early church that um, uh, one, one particular writer talks about how he took advantage of the church all over the Roman Empire. And he would travel from city to city claiming to be a Christian and he would stay in homes of these Christians who would take him in. And they were known for their hospitality and he purposely took advantage of them and published it. And, and they did so gladly knowing that they could be taken advantage of, knowing that they might be being taken advantage of, but they... Their lives had been changed and this hospitality transformed the way they treated others. got to a point that there was actually a, a document called the Didache that, that actually specified what that hospitality was supposed to look like and, and, and how long a, a teacher or a preacher could, could stay in your home. And if he stayed longer than this, then you'd know that he's a false teacher because, because the outside community was taking advantage of the church and what they were called to do. And so... It, understandably, sometimes you are going to be taken advantage of. There will be people who try to manipulate you. When we show hospitality, we often limit ourselves to people, though, that we know and people that we are comfortable around. And yet, one of the marks of our faith lived out is to demonstrate hospitality to strangers. John MacArthur expressed it this way. He said, the danger of being taken is no excuse for not helping someone in need. A stranger, by definition, is someone that we do not know personally. Consequently, it's easy to be deceived when helping a stranger. A person who asks for $10 to buy food or his, for his family may spend it on alcohol or drugs. We should use our common sense in deciding how best to help him, but our primary concern should be for helping, not for avoiding being taken advantage of. If we help in good faith, God will honor our effort. Love is often taken advantage of but this is a cost but this is a cost that it does not count i remember an evening in chicago when i was with my good friend mark mcdowell uh, we were walking to michigan avenue for a bite to eat and we passed two children along the way they were begging for change and as i was conversing with my friend i, I suddenly realized that i was having a conversation all by myself and he wasn't with me anymore. And so I turned around trying to figure out where Mark went, and there he was, several yards back, kneeling down on the ground beside this little boy and his baby sister. One of the scams that you grow accustomed to on the streets of the Windy City is parents sending their children out to gather money because they're cute, and they bring the money home, and then oftentimes that money is spent on, on things that are, it's not intended for. The child brings in the profits, and then many parents use the proceeds to supply different addictions or whatever. And so discernment is warranted, but there was Mark visiting with these children as if they had been good friends for years. It was about that, the time that I caught back up with, with him that he asked them if they were hungry. And they shook their heads with wide eyes and 
And he asked them if they were going to be there for that spot for just a little while. And so we continued on our way. Uh, I bought my dinner and Mark bought enough for three. He, he didn't fill their coffers with cash, but he filled their stomachs using genuine hospitality. Hospitality that was discerning. Hospitality that recognized what the need was, the real need, and he addressed it. And then, after sharing a meal with these two little children, he showed these children his bracelet. His wordless bracelet. These little beads that represent the Gospel. And so he whipped out his stash of leather that he always had in his back pocket and five beads. And right there on the sidewalk, he walked them through the Gospel and through the wordless bracelet and he shared with them the love of Jesus Christ. My friends, that is what hospitality looks like within the Christian community. As enemies who have been redeemed, forgiven, and welcomed into God's family, our lives are to be characterized by a spirit of hospitality. There's a beautiful reason given at the end of this verse. He says, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The author of Hebrews is referring back to Genesis where Abraham saw three strangers. And if you remember the story, Abraham is at his tent and, and these three strangers are, are walking by. What's Abraham do? He pulls out the fatted calf. He prepares a meal. Sarah goes in. She prepares this feast. And, and they sit down and, and he shows extraordinary hospitality even for the times that he lived in in, in, the, in the ancient East. And he showed hospitality to these three strangers that were approaching his tent. And he went to great extremes to show hospitality to what turned out to be two angels and likely a pre-incarnate appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not much else is said about this. Uh, not much else is said about other opportunities where this might happen. But it leaves open the possibility that you and I also, we might have the privilege at some point of serving angels when we show kindness to a stranger that we've never met before. And there are other passages which demonstrate that angelic beings, not only do they sometimes manifest themselves in ways that we think we're talking to another human being, but we also know that angelic beings, they watch us. They give glory to God when our walk reflects what we believe about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Kindness to strangers, ministering to those in need, showing hospitality. This is the behavior of those who belong to an unshakable kingdom. And it delights the angels when they see it. And they give glory to our God. Verse 3 conveys a third command of what kingdom living looks like while we live on this earth. He writes, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Early in Hebrews 10, uh, he had already referred to the reality that some of their brothers and sisters in Christ had been thrown into prison because of their faith. Some of the Hebrews had already suffered. Some of them had lost their homes. They had lost all their, their livelihood, their jobs, all of their earthly possessions. And yes, some of them were thrown in prison. And in the midst of these struggles, they demonstrated, the church did, they demonstrated their endurance, their perseverance by showing compassion on those in prison. Which of course meant associating themselves with those who were being persecuted and open, opening themselves up to similar treatment because now they were going in and they were showing themselves to be a believer in Jesus Christ just like this person who was there because they were a believer in Jesus Christ. It's possible that some of them might have been thrown in prison with them because of that. 
During these days, prisons were nothing like what we see in our, co- in our country. Uh, prisons meant rotting in a, a dark hole with none of your basic necessities being cared for. You, you might get some moldy bread and, and water, but imprisonment usually meant that you were completely dependent upon the kindness of relatives or friends who would bring you food and clothing, provisions to survive. Uh, I think Paul makes a, a reference to Timothy. He says, please bring my scrolls and, and bring a cloak because winter's coming. Uh, th- that wasn't provided for in that system. In fact, when Angie and I were in Rome last November, we stopped at the Mamertine prison uh, just down the street from the Colosseum where Paul and Peter and perhaps some of those Hebrews that were talked about in this passage, perhaps some of these Hebrew believers were in prison there as well. And, and I have to say that it was one of the most sobering experiences of our time in Italy. Uh, together we walked... Uh, through this, this prison. Uh, nobody else was there. There was one other group of Latin students that were touring, touring the museum and the prison itself. And um, it was quiet. It was somber. And Angie and I walked down a spiral staircase that wasn't there in ancient times, but it, it ran parallel to the hole in the ceiling that, that the prisoner would be lowered down on a rope. And, and what we saw there was astonishing. It was just a carved out hole uh, with large stones all around. There was no bed, no table, no place for a toilet, uh, no light bulb hanging from the ceiling. It, it was just a hole in the ground encircled by heavy stones with a corner for a latrine and in ancient time just a hole in the ceiling where you might just catch glimpses of light that might happen to come into the prison. So when your brothers and sisters in Christ were in a Roman cell. Philadelphia meant that you remembered those in prison. Sympathy that is lived out with tangible expression is a part of the Christian life. We are called to be sympathetic people. Sometimes it means literally visiting those in prison. Sometimes it means showing compassion to the refugee who has been sold into a system of modern slavery and he now owns his or her life to the cartels. It also means that you remember that you consider what it feels like to be cold. You, you, in your humanness, think about what it feels like to be hungry, to be underdressed, inappropriately dressed, to be humiliated, to be despised, to have the flu but not to have some bed that you can crawl into. If and you don't dismiss them or, or turn them away or, or just try to not think about them, but consider that you too are still capable of suffering similar pains because you are in the human body like they are. My friends, those who belong to an unshakable kingdom stand with those who are mistreated. Verse 4 addresses a very practical area of the Christian walk and another one of the commands for those that live in an unshakable kingdom the treasure of marriage. In Roman culture, marriage was treated very similar to how our culture treats it. I, I remember when I was taking a, a class on um, intertestamental history, uh, we, we were particularly focused on, uh, focusing on the Roman Empire during, during a, a couple-week period. And I remember my professor saying, we're going to have a session next time, and we're going to talk about sex in the Roman Empire and marriage and relationships. And he says, I'm going to give you a pass that won't count against your cuts for the class. 
This is if, if you're single or if you don't want to come to this class, if you feel like this would be a stumbling block in any way, or you just don't want to hear the content of what this class is going to be, he says, we're going to talk about the history of what the Roman Empire looked like. And he says, and some of you guys just might not want to be here. And, and certainly it was astonishing. But it was very similar to what we see in our culture today. It, it was very um, reminiscent of what we look around and see all around us. Roman culture, in Roman culture, marriage was treated very similar to how our culture treats it. In fact, it was very common for a husband to have a wife that was there to bear children for him and, and have a mistress that was there for pleasure. That was just the way the Romans did it. And so when a person became a Christian, it was life-altering. There were things that completely changed your, your social structure and your family and the way that you did life and the way that you loved your, your wife and your wife loved you. Sex was seen very much in the same way then as our culture sees it. Polygamy, homosexuality, infidelity, promiscuity. These are things that were celebrated in the Roman Empire, in Roman culture. Just like it's celebrated today in ours. But Jesus offers something better. Offers something much more glorious. And as those who are part of His unshakable kingdom, we are called to a standard that is far, that is far away from what our culture tries to sell us. And what our culture tells us is good and is to be celebrated. In verse 4, he writes, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. In a very practical way, he's given us a lot of warnings throughout the book of Hebrews. Our, our faith in Jesus Christ should change the way that we walk. And it's the same within marriage and within the sexual relationship of marriage. I, I believe that God is probably addressing two extremes here. There's two different thoughts going on that, that he's addressing with this one command. You see, on the one hand, there were those who carried their Roman opinion of marriage and their Roman opinions of, of sex life into their Christian life. And Hebrews clearly demonstrates that this is not an option for the believer. The way that you lived before you were a believer in Jesus Christ it is not an option. And your views of marriage and your views of sex have to conform to God's Word because He wants what's best for you and because we are His. And because he's, He judges sexual immorality and adultery. But on the other hand, there were those within the Christian community uh, who chose to remain single. Uh, in fact, they, many of them chose a life of asceticism for one reason or another. There was this temptation among some fringe groups of Christians to condemn marriage as something that was worldly. And they condemned the, the pleasures of the marriage bed. And there's, there's, there was this, this false dichotomy with a lot of Christian circles that they, they thought, you know, if it's, if it's material, if it's physical, if it has something to do with the body, then, then that's sin. And if there's anything that, that you indulge in, whether it's eating or drinking or sex, if there's anything even within the boundaries that God has set, that you enjoy, then that must be wrong because the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. And so they created this false dichotomy that the Scripture just doesn't give us. And I think Hebrews is addressing that. And Hebrews commands us to honor marriage. Hold it up as something special. Something to be celebrated. Recognize that the institution itself is highly significant. In fact, 
each and every marriage is to be a lifelong canvas to be painted upon which shows the rest of the world this beautiful relationship between Christ and His bride. In every single marriage, we are to be a display for others to see that shows them the love that Jesus Christ has for His church and that the church has for its Savior. So hold up marriage in honor and never, never treat it as a burden that's destroyed your freedom. And neither treat sex as a cheap trinket that can be tossed aside nor as a a necessary evil to bring children into the world. Both extremes are a distortion of one of the most beautiful treasures that God has bestowed upon two people. Sex inside the bounds of marriage is to be relished and great freedom is given there with great joy. So much so that an entire book of the Bible has been given to us to celebrate what God has given to a husband and a wife for their lifetime together. Our culture, it sets traps all around you, doesn't it? It just wants you to stumble. Satan relishes it. And the culture that we live in celebrates it. And there are traps all around for your your mind and your thoughts and your eyes. Some of you are struggling. Some of you are struggling. You need to come alongside, have somebody else come alongside you and say, hey, look, I I need some accountability in this. I I need to have a brother or a sister that, that will help me with this. Some of you are struggling with this and you're dishonoring your marriage. You're defiling your marriage bed. Not necessarily by pursuing relationships that are apart from your spouse or your future spouse, if that case may be. But you're defiling the marriage bed by bringing pornography into your home or streaming so-called content for mature audiences on your large screen TVs. Some of you are dishonoring marriage in other ways when you swoon over the next hot actor or actress that creates some kind of false expectation for the man or the woman that God has given to you that they will never be able to live up to. But you're defiling and dishonoring the marriage by by holding your spouse up to these other standards. And when he doesn't ride in on a white stallion and take you to a castle far away, or when she doesn't fit into that sleek satin gown that some model from Hollywood wore well, we set ourselves up to be disenchanted by the love of our lives instead of holding marriage up as a high prize. I'm telling you, that if Sports Illustrated or the Hallmark Channel, if it is devaluing the treasure that the Lord your God has entrusted to you, then it's time for these idols to go. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And if there's something that's coming in the way of you honoring that relationship with the person that God has given to you, then put it aside. In our last two verses for today, Hebrews provides us one more mandate that's necessary for those who belong to God's unshakable kingdom. In verse 5, he says, keep your life free 
from the love of money and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my Helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There's a very oftentimes misquoted passage of the Bible that I hear from the lips of Christians and from unbelievers alike. And the conversation usually goes something like this. The person says, you know, the Bible says that money is the root of all evil. Have you heard that? Have you heard that said? Maybe you said that? Did you know that the Bible never says that? Never. Those words are not found in Scripture. It does not say that money is the root of all evil. Nowhere. The passage that many people are thinking of that they're quoting is actually 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. And the full context says this, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You see, money is a tool, isn't it? If money is the root of all evil, I have to ask why you have a credit card in your wallet right now. It's a tool. It's a resource. But the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's a resource that every, about every human being that I'm aware of has to make use of in one way or another, or someone must make use of it on their behalf. Money is a resource, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And Hebrews reminds us to keep your life free from the love of money. Don't fall into this trap. Whether you have vast resources or only a penny, be content with what you have. Because Jesus Christ is supreme, because He's better than all these other something else's, money can't become a substitute for our Savior. And we have to be content with what He's given to us. You know, likely this is included here because of the persecution that some of these believers were going through and that they were about to experience. Some of them probably had already lost their homes. They probably had lost all of their physical possessions in this world. Some of them were probably about to lose much more. In the midst of poverty, God calls us to be content. And Hebrews provides us with two, two Old Testament quotes. The first comes from Moses' instruction to Joshua at the end of Deuteronomy regarding God's presence when Joshua was going to lead Israel into the Promised Land. Hebrews takes that passage and it applies the truth of that statement to all of us. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, God tells us. No matter how great or little your means, no matter what your suffering in this life might consist of, what was true for Joshua when he crossed the Jordan River and went into the land of Israel, his God never left him. His God never forsook him. And what was true for Joshua is just as true for you in the 21st century. Your God will never leave you. Your God will never forsake you. Therefore, you do not need to fall into the trap of the love of money. You are heirs of heaven. And so again, let us live as sons and daughters of the kingdom as we endure for the joy that is before us. The praise team is going to come forward before we celebrate communion, but I'd like to, um, I'd like to close with one of the words of, um, excuse me, I'd like to close with the words of a psalm. Um, psalm 118 is the last passage that's quoted here in this passage. Um, the second passage that Hebrews quotes here comes from Psalm 118, verses 6-7. through seven. And I'd like to remind us of the truths 
that are in the surrounding context, not just those two verses. And I'm going to read the first nine verses and then jump to the end of verses 28 and 29. Psalm 119, excuse me, 118, starting in verse 1, he says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. He goes on to say, You are my God. I will give thanks to You. You are my God and I will extol You. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Father in Heaven, we, we adore You. We thank You. Your steadfast love endures forever. It endures to every generation. And we, we're grateful that You have called us to be a part of this unshakable kingdom. As we continue to consider what it means that Jesus Christ is supreme over all, that He is better than the angels, that He is better than Moses, He is better than the high priests of the Old Testament, He is better and offers a better sacrifice for us. He is better and He has led us into the heavenly places. Removing the barriers of sin and the barriers of the law. And Jesus has brought us right into Your presence. And so we thank You that You have provided this better way. As we consider all of these things and, and cherish these gifts that You've given to us, might it change the way that we live and that we walk today. Father, today I pray for myself and for this group of believers. Lord, might You help us to put on brotherly love. Help us to love one another in the way that we show hospitality, in the way that we show kindness to one another, in the way that we take care of those who are suffering, the way that we have sympathy and show mercy, the way that we honor our marriage and our future marriages. I pray that You would be pleased in our walk with You. Might You be honored in the way that we trust You and have contentment in the way that You provided for us. You are a good God, and we praise You. Amen.